Okay, this is going to be part two of uh, perioperative nursing care. What can you tell me you remember from Wednesday? What were some of the key, key points from Wednesday's class? What, what sticks out in your mind? Informed consent, right? Making sure that people are competent and ready to make a decision that they have all the information, Brianna? Pardon? Getting that pre-op nursing history, very important, making sure that you're looking for any red flags that would indicate that this person may have a problem. And the other part of the pre-op history is also to see what their own experiences and fears are so you're assessing their readiness because how they're, how they're getting ready for that takes, puts us into, I'd move this, but there's wet coffee there and I was afraid if I didn't move it, I'll trip over it. Uh, the readiness is for uh, the teaching because you can't teach somebody who's so nervous and so scared about the surgery, they're not gonna hear what you have to say. So, you so, so making sure that they are, are ready for the surgery uh, is, uh, not only physically, but emotionally ready uh, for, uh, for the surgery is very important. What you teach, what do they need to know before the surgery? Well, if it can be done, they ha need to know how, how they're going to be prepared, how they need to prepare for the procedure. So for example, most patients now are told, don't take any aspirin, don't take any ibuprofen, for several weeks before surgery, those kinds of instructions. Plus, if there's any other things that they need to learn beforehand, um, even things that are gonna be done post-operatively, a lot of them are taught pre-operatively because it's easier to do that when you're not in pain and you're not having, you know, recovering from the effects of surgery. People need to know about the procedure itself and they need to know what's, the, like, what's going to happen during that post-operative period. What's the, what's the course of the, of the recovery going to be? Is it gonna be short, gonna be long? Is it gonna be painful? Uh, if so, how can we do it? What complications could be expected? And what kinds of things are you going to be asked to do to prevent those complications? So for example, a lot of times with a lot of surgeries now, people are getting up out of bed the day of the surgery. And people are shocked, you know, after you've had uh, hip replacement or things like that, that they're asking people to stand. And people, and a lot of, a lot of patients are upset by that, uh, but they have to understand that that's what helps prevent complications. We operate in our education with the idea that knowledge reduces fear. Fear is based on the unknown. So the, the idea is, the theory is, if you, what on earth are you doing? And it has to be done right now. Okay. Okay. All right. All right. There. All right. You need LASIK? I can give some to you right now. Hold on. Just stare into there. Um, so the idea is, is that fear is based on the unknown, so when people know things, have information, they then can, are, are better able to handle it. Um, this sometimes is hard for people, sometimes in family members sort of like to function under the idea that ignorance is bliss, 
but nursing doesn't function that way. And sometimes we, you might find family members or things that would say, well, don't tell them, or they, they, shouldn't, they shouldn't know. And so you need to talk to member, family members about that if they would rather people not know. When you are teaching someone, uh, you have to think about the timing. Uh, it's generally a good idea to try to do it as far, you know, in advance of the surgery, not at the morning of the surgery, because the morning of the surgery, people are tending, tended to be, are going to be more nervous. It's going to be harder for them to concentrate on what you have to say. Repetition is also important if things can be done repeatedly, although that rarely can be can be done. The other thing is, is you have to get kind of a, a quick judgment or assessment of someone's cognitive skills. Uh, how much do they, do they understand? Don't fall into the trap that because somebody has a college degree or that somebody's a nurse or a physician that you don't have to explain things to them. I've talked to lots of physicians who are psychiatrists and say they get upset sometimes because their uh, other physicians assume that they know uh, about medical procedures uh, or nurses, for example, they'll assume you know about a procedure. But if it's not in your area, if you're an L&D nurse and you're uh, you know, having orthopedic surgery, you may not have seen that in many, many years or ever have seen it. And so you can't assume that the, that the patient will, will know. You also have to look at their anxiety levels. How ready are they to learn? And you can get some clues just from looking at somebody whether or not they're ready to learn. Um, can you make out our, our patient and nurse here? How ready do you think she is to learn? That's the patient there. How ready is she to learn? Pretty ready? What gave you that idea, Jen? She's smiling. She's making eye contact. What else? Anything else? Right, she, she seems relaxed and, and open to, to hearing things. So, you know, read those signals, read that body language stuff. You learned about that stuff in communication, look for it. Look where their hands are. If she's wringing her hands like this, uh, or um, looking, looking really nervous in there, biting her fingernails or something, then that's a clue to you that she may be um, nervous. And then the other thing is just you have to think about what, what am I going to teach at what level. Some people want lots of information. You may find that your patients who are nurses or are very interested in the, nuts, the details of a procedure may want to know more about what medication am I going to receive, what is the anesthesia that they'll use, what is you know, how they want more details about what kind of stitches will I have, if any, um, and where others may not if they're not experienced or they just want to know just the basics. Um, with kids, for example, we tend not to get into a lot of details about the surgery, but focus more on what it's going to do for you, why you're doing this, and what you're going to feel, what, what's, what, what experiences are you going to have. Uh, and then as they get older, you give more, more information. So with the, the content, um, 
you need to know, they need to know the timing, how long do they have to come in beforehand, before the surgery or the morning of the surgery, what are the steps going to be. Most hospitals nowadays uh, don't admit people overnight if for a surgery the next day. They, they just instruct people to be NPO and then to arrive at the hospital early in the morning and then they're taken to a, um, a pre-op holding area. The, the final checks are done with informed consent uh, sometimes IVs are started there, and then the person is moved uh, to, uh, to surgery, and the families are then sent to uh, a family waiting area. Told you about waiting for the sensations. These are the things that you want to talk about also in your teaching for that post-operative uh, experience. A lot of people are worried about pain and pain control, so you want to tell them what kinds of pain they can expect, how long it will last, and what kind of pain control will be used. Typically, after uh, fairly extensive surgeries, people are going to be put on to uh, PCA, patient-controlled analgesia, that uses morphine. Morphine is simple to, is, is, is good because it works, it's very effective for most people. Uh, it's easy to calculate how much uh, morphine most people are going to need for that surgery. And with the PCA, studies show that people actually have better pain control. They don't get real high um, peaks of pain. They don't get real, real low valleys where they're totally snowed. It, it helps them. The only thing is, is that morphine also has its own little problems. It can make people very agitated. It can make people feel itchy. Uh, make people feel really just, just weird, they'll, they'll tell you. And so you got about 48 hours where PCA is pretty effective postoperatively. But that's okay because actually after that time, then you're better off moving to some of the more, uh, some of the PO analgesics like Percocet, things like that. You can take that every four hours and that actually ha seems to have, it is an opioid, but it doesn't seem to have as much of the other uh, side effects of just taking the morphine. And so you tell people that you're going to go from an IV to a PO pill, and then by the time you go home, you'll just go home with, with medicine to tell, take the edge off the pain. And postoperatively, pain should diminish uh, each day postoperatively. Post if there's any kind of exercises that people are, are needed, that need to do, you need to talk about those, and it's a good idea to walk them through it. So if it's if it's going to be climbing stairs, um, lifting weights, uh, breathing exercises, any of those kind of things, it's a good idea to practice that before the surgery. So with respiratory things, for example, it's a good, we use a little thing called an incentive spirometer. I've had a picture of one of those. You've never, has everybody seen one of those? Have you had that in lab or seen them around? Okay. Anyway, it's still a good idea to practice with that preoperatively so that people know what's expected of them. It also gives you a pre-op baseline of their lung capacity, which is important because postoperatively they're probably not going to, especially if they have any kind of thoracic surgery, abdominal surgery, they're probably not going to give you good um, tidal volume on that inspirometer. So you want to have that baseline so you know where, what, you, what they should be working towards. If there's any restrictions, um, so after some surgeries, people are told not to climb stairs, not to lift weights, uh, anything that may require operating uh, machinery because you're going to be on uh, pain medications probably will be right out, driving and things like that. 
the old days they sometimes would say restrict driving because driving a car in the past was actually a very strenuous activity. In the days before power steering, uh, it took some muscle to move a car. And before we had the synchronized um, shifters, shifting a, shifting a car was pretty difficult too. I don't know if you've, has anybody ever driven a real old car? You can, it's, it's tough, it takes some muscle. And, but you know, and you still see, I still see occasionally, and t tell me if you've seen this too, in L&D, where they'll tell mothers not to drive after, after delivery. Has anybody heard that? I've seen occasionally I'll hear mother, somebody tell them that, oh, they're not supposed to drive after delivery. And I think it comes from those like 50s <laughs> teaching pamphlets that said you shouldn't drive because it was, hard, because it was physically hard. The other thing would be wound care, what kind of wound you're going to have, what kind of care is involved. Now, of course, if you've got something that's potentially disfiguring, let's say um, uh, an amputation, um, uh, colostomy, where there's going to be a, a colostomy bag, things like that, that's a whole extra amount of teaching that's going to have to be done. And there are people whose job is just to do that. There are nurses whose job is just to help with the colostomy teaching. And it's really helps to begin that before the surgery. Uh, with cardiac surgeries, it's common for, uh, sometimes for um, gentlemen in the area, I've known to, to go to visit people preoperatively and show them the scars and talk to people about the experience so, so that, so that preoperatively people will see uh, what's, going to, what's going to happen. Same thing with col uh, colostomies. Uh, I've had see, where, where patients will come in and show a pre-op patient what's going to happen, what you're going to see, how, and talk about how it's really like uh, to have this. Uh, with the deep breathing exercises, not just using the incentive spirometer as I talked about, but also the idea of what is diaphragmatic breathing, breathing from the diaphragm uh, and not because there's a lot of times if, if you have an absorbed abdomen, uh, you're just going to want to breathe through uh, your mouth like that and, and you're not getting very good uh, tidal volume there. So you have to help people if, if they have any experience singing and things like that where you learn to breathe, you know, use your, use your diaphragm. But this is a good time uh, to do it. Also coughing. Uh, deep breathe and cough uh, really helps clear uh, things. And so one of the things to do is take a pillow, put it around your, your abdomen, have people hold on to the pillow <coughs> and give a good cough. And again, doing that preoperatively it, it helps. Uh, leg exercises, sometimes we have people um, in bed, if they're not allowed to walk, just, just um, doing range of motion exercises. Again, do those preoperatively. And if they're going to be turned, uh, you know, anybody who's going to be immobilized for a long time isn't going to be able to get, get up. You need to talk to them about turning. Uh, a lot of times people want to just be left alone. They want, and, and sometimes there's a tendency for nurses because you don't want to disturb somebody just to let them lie flat on the back, but they can't do that. So you're going to teach them that people are going to be coming in, we're going to be turning you this way, then we're going to be turning you that way. Here's some of the things that we can use. If you're going to be using any kind of special beds uh, that are used, they have beds that air will inflate and deflate in different portions of the mattress. Uh, there's beds that the whole thing floats on a, it's filled with sand and then air blows underneath it and you kind of float on it. So if you're going to be using any of those kind of beds, um, 
you should inter again introduce people ahead of time. All right. Anything on teaching? Any questions? All right. Physical preparation. Um, one of the things that's co very common before surgery is um, not to not eat. Uh, people are asked to fast and even not to drink anything just before surgery. And the reason for that is because uh, there is an aspiration risk. A lot of the anesthetic medications cause people to be nauseated. And so the, if you have nothing in your stomach, then even if you do retch, then, then very little can come up and there's less chance of then food, for example, going into your, up, up the esophagus, down the trachea, and into your lungs, because that's a sure way to get a lung infection. Um, so the reality is sometimes surgeries have to be done in emergency situations. People are not NPO. You get people where, you know, they're in a, they just leave Burger King after eating two Whoppers. They're in a car accident. The surgery's got to be done. They can't say, sorry, we'll come back in eight hours and, and do the surgery. So it can be done, but if, if at all possible, we'd rather, rather not. Uh, some surgeries, if they require any, anything done to the intestines, the intestines are, have to be cleaned out. Uh, and so you'll get series of laxatives and, and enemas. Um, sometimes you'll see orders that say give enemas until clear. That doesn't mean until clear, absolutely clear like water comes out. That means that when, when uh, the, uh, after you do the enema and when they expel it, it can be brown tinged. You're just not seeing any more solids in it. That's what that, that's what that means. Uh, so that's, that's usually called a bowel prep. Uh, so anybody who's getting any kind of GI, GI surgery often has to go through that. Um, skin preparation, um, this has been greatly diminished because research was showing that people did not need to be shaved as much as they were, that generally just in the, in the one area where the surgery is done. In fact, with a lot of surgeries now, what they do is just, just uh, shave this small area where incisions are gonna be made and then they put down a, 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 a clear plastic barrier that's sterile over the skin, and that helps then prevents things from the skin from jumping in. It's almost impossible to sterilize the skin. Your skin is made up of all these layer, dermal, dermal layers of dead, dead skin on the surface down to living skin uh, lower, lower down, and there's all kinds of bacteria and viruses living in there all the time, and even using uh, hand sanitizers and the betadine solutions and all the other things, they find that there's still things living through that because there's just so many places for them to hide. So by, by switching to these barriers, they uh, seem to be improved, they've Im lowered uh, infections from at the incision sites. Um, shaving too also damages the skin, cuts the skin, and actually can open you up to more infections. So it's, it's, it's been greatly uh, diminished from the, from the past. Also getting a, set, a good set of baseline vitals. How is this, what's this person's heart rate, blood pressure, respiratory rate before the surgery? If you have somebody who is an athlete, for example, their resting heart rate can be in the 50s. If you didn't know that beforehand, post, and then post-operatively you see that their, that their heart rate is 52, you might be in a panic thinking they're bradycardic, when in fact they're just somebody who's in very good condition. 
and doesn't and, and it's so in that person's case they're not bradycardic in my case I would be near death if at 52 <laughs> at 52 um, so you need to know all those things and and also a temperature just in case there is for some reason some last-minute fever and if there was uh, in many cases, electric sur elective surgeries would probably be canceled. That if somebody has an active fever, uh, they wouldn't um, wouldn't do the surgery. Uh, and that also is one of the things I didn't mention in the pre-op teaching too. Another thing to mention to people is to try to stay as healthy as possible f before the surgery. Stay away from people with colds. Be washing your hands. You know, taking taking good care of yourself before the surgery is important. Interesting, another interesting thing, now this is research that was done in the 90s. This was a recommendation by the American Society of Anesthesiologists in 1999. Uh, this is in your Lewis textbook too, this, this chart. But amazingly, a lot of people still don't know this, and I've talked to, I still talk to nurses who don't realize that up to two hours before surgery, you can drink clear liquids. So if you have a pill to take or something like that, uh, like a blood pressure medication, things like that, very often you do it with permission. Uh, it has to be cleared first because they have to depend whether or not they want you to have that medication. Sometimes they'll ask you to hold it. But up to two hours before the surgery, they may say it's okay to take, uh, let's say, your low tensin um, medicine for high blood pressure with a sip of water, and that's going to be fine. Generally, you shouldn't be drinking giant 20-ounce glasses of uh, uh, Dunkin' Donuts coffee, but, but uh, small, small amounts of fluid are going to be fine. And you'll notice that even a light meal up to six hours before surgery eight, uh, and eight hours before surgery. Not all surgeries are done at 7 in the morning. This is why, you know, you've heard the expression MPO after midnight. Well, that comes from the days when everybody's surgeries or most surgeries were going to be done in the morning. But in a lot of places, you're on a surgical schedule, and your surgery may not be until 2 in the afternoon. You don't want to have, to pay, have patients being NPO at midnight and not getting surgery for, what, 14 hours later? No need for that. So what you might want to look at is if you have somebody who is scheduled for an afternoon surgery, uh, get them up early in the morning and let them have at least a light breakfast. This actually improves outcome because they feel better, they're not starving, they're not dehydrated. They're, usually we don't have to worry so much about dehydration because a lot of times they'll start IVs. But it also lets them know that uh, you know, their, their blood glucose will be higher, they'll be in, they'll be in better condition for the, for the surgery. Uh, there's lots of cases where, where people are where, you know, you say NPO after midnight, a lot of times people wouldn't eat late at night. They'd eat their supper at 5 p.m. and then not eat at all the next day because the surgery was the next day. So they're going from 5 p.m. until the surgery at 2 p.m. the next day with eating, eating nothing. That's way, way too long. So Keep, keep that in mind. And also you look at babies up to four hours before surgery, they can have uh, breast milk six hours before they can have uh, formula in those two cases there. So it's good, in, good information to know that, that just because people are, um, when you see the MPO orders, that doesn't mean midnight. That's just an old tradition. You know the fact that nursing, yes? 
Yeah. There was a case right there. She was M made NPO after midnight for an MRI that actually wasn't even scheduled until that afternoon, right? So nobody was thinking about when do we actually need to make somebody NPO. Right, and considering the light sedation that she was gonna get for the MRI, right, it was, it was really unnecessary you know, to make her go from 5 p.m. Uh, and then all the, all the next day. What was I starting to say before Ashley asked the question? I can't remember. I had some really important thing and I can't remember what it was. I don't know. Um, in that immediate uh, pre-op period, we people need to, to be physically prepared, so jewelry, dentures, glasses, contacts have to be taken out, Makeup has to come off, nail polish has to come off because we're gonna be looking at their nail, nail beds. Uh, we also, you also should be looking in people's mouths to see if they have any bridge work, dentures, things like that, anything loose in there, pieces of gum. All that needs to come, to come out. Junior mints, right? Um, usually people are going to just be dressed in an untied gown so that it can be easily removed when they're in. It's just to, just to keep them covered, usually ask them to void uh, before they, uh, beforehand just makes it a little easier because sometimes there's long waits from the time they get in the pre-op area to the time they go into the, into the surgery. Uh, usually catheters and things will be put in uh, afterwards if needed, um, but it just helps because also once they start the IV fluids, it's going to make you want to start peeing because they often will start the IV fluids at pretty high, pretty high rates. Some of the medications that are used um, preoperatively would be barbiturates and different tran tranquilizers for sedation. You also may see some drugs that are anticholinergics. <laughs> if they have a cold like that, you can't hear sneezing like that, they can't go for surgery. Um, Anticholinergics, uh, because they dry you up. Glycopyrrolate, uh, you'll often see given before the surgery, dries it up. But they do this a lot with um, young kids and babies, too, because they tend to be so juicy. Um, it dries them, it dries, dries them up, um, makes, reduces some of the secretions that, because if the secretions can build up, they then can, as, they can even aspirate um, those. Uh, and sometimes antibiotics are actually started preoperatively. So before the surgeries even begin, they'll start with a dose of IV antibiotic. Uh, moving people to the, to the OR, just keep in mind that we, when we move people, uh, we roll them down the floor feet first. Do you know why that is? Right. If you if remember physics, if something comes to a stop, everything else in the mode in the vehicle keeps moving forward. So if you have somebody feet first, and then you run into uh, the wall or the elevator door or something like that, then their feet would go forward, and that would be less likely to cause problems than if their head goes off the the gurney and bumps into the bumps into the wall. So 
we do that. The other thing is, is that somebody should always needs to stay with the patient, particularly once the people get sedated, getting ready for surgery. This is part of safety to make sure that the right person is getting to the right place and getting the right surgery. So somebody needs to be assigned to have an eye on that person. So whenever you're transferring the person, uh, who's ever responsible for bringing the person to the pre-op, for example, can't just roll the cart in and then wave goodbye and walk away. There has to be a transfer of, the per of responsibility from one person to the next. Uh, let's think, let's just talk about, here's a little case study example. Um, someone signed a consent form, tells you they're having second thoughts. What would you do? Okay, Lisa says call the doctor. Anybody want to do something else? Yes? Ask what's bothering? Okay. Okay. Any other asking questions? Any other ideas? How many people like that idea? Anybody not like that idea? They have better one. That's pretty good answer. That's a good answer. Yeah. If somebody, if somebody's asking about that, uh, you know, it may be very. They very well may want to not do the surgery. Um, but it's better to find out what's bothering them first before you call the physician because a lot of times they may have a simple question or concern that can be answered. What you don't answer with is everything will be fine, there's nothing to worry about, just go ahead and get the surgery, you chicken. Um, that's not a right answer. Uh, but you do acknowledge that they have concerns and that, that you want to you wanna hear. Uh, what about somebody has a long history of asthma and you're going to be you're doing your pre-op teaching? What do you? How would you modify your teaching in the, for this person? Anybody here have asthma? Knows a little bit about at least breathing techniques. Definitely, you'd want to spend more more time on that. What else? Yeah, it would be real important to get pulmonary function, get a little, get a little um, test to see how well they're how well they're breathing before the surgery, uh, so that you know what their baseline is. So that would that would be important. Yes. Right. You'd want to listen to their lung sounds, know what their pre-op lung sounds are. Do they have any wheeziness? Before the before the surgery, you'd want to re, if you do hear that, you'd want to report that because that may affect whether or not they do do the surgery. Did you have a? Did I see another hand up? Yeah. The other thing would be to think about what medications the person's taking, and the timing of taking those medications. Um, how soon they should be taken uh, before the surgery, or how you know up to what point before the surgery can they be taken? Uh, thinking back to our taking the medication with the water, but also talking to the physician about whether or not they want to be done. Because remember that a lot, uh, some of the, the medications, some kid, people with uh, asthma are taking steroids, corticosteroids. So you have to find, find out about that, if they're taking that, uh, and how that may affect their um, uh, 
recovery afterwards and how it can also mask, remember we talked about how steroids can mask infections and so we'd have to uh, note that. Good, all right, intraoperative. Now this is the period when you're, if you're, when you're in the OR and as I said, I'm not gonna ask you questions about this on the test, but it's a good, it's a good thing to, to read. There's a good chapter uh, in Lewis about this, um, about the principles of, of uh, working in an OR. Um, you should know, you know what, are, what are we trying to do? Well, trying to minimize anxiety. So a lot of that is giving people real assurance, talking to them before the medications, um, begin. Uh, one of the other things to keep in mind is a lot of surgeries take a long time and people are going to lie very, very still for a very long time and we're not going to turn them Q2 during the surgery. So uh, risk to skin integrity is, a, is, a, is very high in surgeries that last a long time. And so in operating room tables, they try to use tables and things that have a little more support and a little bit more, more cushioning to try to, to try to minimize that. But it is, an, it is a concern. And when you were, and just to remind you that when you're in your post-operative assessments, that if you have people that have been lying on, in one position for a long time, you're going to see a lot of puffiness. Like if they're, like um, with um, spinal fusion surgery, people are gonna be on their stomach for a real long time. And you'll often find that their faces will be uh, like very um, uh, edematous for a day or two after the surgery. And from, it's from just spending eight hours on your stomach and getting pumped full of IV fluids that that happens. Uh, we're also, uh, you know, the big thing in the OR is trying to minimize post-operative infections. So how is that, how, how is that handled? How is, yes. Right, there's gonna be a, a very extensive scrubbing in to get into, the, get into the surgery. And also the way surgery works is in a, the aseptic technique is that the most highly sterile and most highly controlled area is right at this incision. And then it's a little bit less and a little bit less and a little bit less as you go around because it's impossible to sterilize everybody and everything in the room. So what you do is you deal with the, with the location that is closest to the incision. So, you know, I was telling you about the, the, uh, the clear plastic over the skin. Everybody who comes up to the table has to not only wash their hands, but actually wear sterile clothing. So the gowns you wear uh, and the gloves you have that come up to the patient are sterilized. You wear a hat, you wear a mask so that you're not coughing or breathing into the, into the wound. Everybody in the room is wearing a mask because they're expelling germs all the, all the time. But like a circulating nurse, for example, does not have to get into, the, into a full sterile outfit. You can, you can be in the, as long as you're staying on the perimeter of the room. Anybody go into a C-section in, uh, yeah, what did, did, what did they do for the personnel in there for sterility versus being clean? Right. They cut through the plastic. Yeah, they put that plastic down and they make the incision right, right through it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Right. But they let you in the room. They let you in the room. 
Right, you had a Right, but you didn't have to wear a sterile gown. You didn't have to be put in the sterile gloves and all of that to go into the room, though. Right. Yeah, you have your little booties, so you're not bringing your germs from the outside. Right, because he had, because he was, because he was get to, he got to be closer. Right. So the idea is, is that you go into the OR. Just you can't go up and look in to see what's what's happening there. Um, because they assume, you know, they're, the, again, the idea that only those people who have scrubbed in, meaning that they've, they've gone through a full 10, longer than 10-minute scrubbing period. If you, you notice by the sinks, they have a clock, usually, that, so, so you know how long you're supposed to, to um, scrub before, before going in. Um, and they're going to probably ask you to do a similar scrub before you before you go in, although it's not really that necessary because you're probably not going to be handling anything. Um, what else? I'm trying to think what else. Uh, you know, you see, one of the other things is that you see the ORs have tons and tons of equipment. It's a very, very dangerous place inside an OR because you have flammable gases being used, you have oxygen in use, and you have a lots of electrical equipment. And some surgeries require cauterization and the use of lasers and things like that that are burning. And you're having these burning in a flammable environment. So they are, they are dangerous. And so you really, they really need to be careful. The equipment has to be carefully inspected. Of course, it has to be cleaned thoroughly um, before, before it goes in. So if you're in an OR, you need to watch where you're walking. Watch what you're touching because you don't. There's every, everything is should be put into a place where it it won't become a tripping hazard, won't become a shock hazard. Also, the uh, the anesthetics themselves are are dangerous, and you know so you have to minimize exposure exposure to those. That's a bigger version of that picture, but you can see how how crowded it can get in, in, in ORs. Uh, some of the nursing goals, if you're working in, a, in an OR uh, along with protecting patient's skin, we're trying to minimize hypothermia. Uh, because of the effects of the anesthesia, it slows down your metabolic rate and ORs themselves tend to be cool, for the, partly for the comfort of the, of the surgeons working in there and partly because it discourages bacterial growth. Cooler rooms are not, are, uh, bacteria doesn't, doesn't grow as well. Um, also making sure that people have adequate fluids during the surgery, so if they're losing any blood during the surgery, that's often replaced. Uh, blood replacement can be, people can get their own blood back. They also have things where, where blood can be uh, recovered cleaned and then put back into the patient in some cases. Uh, they're they're doing, trying to do as many things as possible to reduce the number of units, donated blood units that you, that you get. The less donated blood you get, the safer it is for, for you. Yes? Yes. Oh, she was on a heating blanket. 
Yeah, yeah. They sometimes you'll see people piled up with blankets, but they also use a heating blanket that has warm water flowing through it. So it looks like a raft, like you described. Yeah, and it has warm water flowing through it. So you're trying to bring a person's body temperature back up. It's very common to see people post-operatively really, really, really cold, and so you have to spend a lot of time. So in surgery, what they try to do is to cover up a person's bodies as much as possible uh, so that they, that re reduces some of that hypothermia. The other part of that is minimizing family anxiety. And so most uh, hospitals now have somebody who's responsible for keeping family members up to date with what's happening in the in the OR. Uh, down at DuPont, uh, the procedure is every hour there is a registered nurse, and that's her only job, is to go around the ORs, find out the status of each of the patients in the surgery, then come out once an hour uh, to the family waiting room and give a report to each family about what's happening. So, and that tells you, you know, when, they, when the surgery started, how the patient's doing, how much longer there is to be done, or, et cetera. And it helps keep them, in, keep the, keeps the family calmer, keeps the family have a clear idea of what's, um, what's happening. And, it, and I can tell you from personal experience, you know, when my daughter was going through the surgery, it really, it really is nice. It makes the time go faster when you know, okay, here we are, we're halfway through the surgery and we've got a few more hours and, uh, you know, everything has been going fine. Brittany? The, it, she said she died from hypothermia as a result of the anesthesia. Well, the anesthesia, as I said, it lowers your metabolic rate and you do get colder and your body core body temperature goes down. Now, either she, hers got lower than ever could they, and they were not able to bring her back up. So it was sort of, a, sort of like when somebody has exposure, it you know, falls into a frozen lake or something. If it was that kind of injury, it's hard to tell sometimes from news reports what the real, real story is, you know. But it, but there, you know, there. This isn't harmless, you know. Not and not everybody makes it through these things. And so when we talked about fears and concerns and things like this, they are, they are real. So, um, but that's pretty unusual. So you know, usually when I hear those things, you kind of wonder if is it was it more of a reaction to the anesthesia, an undesirable reaction, and maybe hypothermia was just part part of it. All right, uh, postoperatively, uh, people are usually moved to a post anesthesia care unit called the PACU, and uh, these are your. Concerns, biggest nursing concerns when a patient comes to you after surgery. They have to be, they have to have respiratory recovery. They have to be able to start breathing on their own. A lot of people, because of the, the sedation that's used and the anesthesia is so heavy, they have to be intubated to, to, in order to, to keep breathing. That tube gets pulled out. They have to be, they have to be able to breathe on their, on their own. So, so you have to be able to, to see if they're able to uh, to do that. They have to be able to maintain their blood pressure. The other thing is because of the effects of the anesthesia, your blood pressure can get very low. If you've lost a lot of fluid too, um, that can also affect your, your, the equilibrium of your cardiovascular system. Neurologic stability. One of the big concerns is be, some people 
physiologically go through the surgery, but they never wake up. There can be damage to the brain afterwards. And so as soon as you can get people to be talking and alert, or you know, at least say something to you, that tells you that at least neurologically they're still intact. The other thing is, is that with surgeries that involve the spine and nerves, you can, there can be paralysis and things like that that could have occurred during the surgery. During the spinal fusions, for example, they actually use little sensors that tell whether or not the, the peripheral nerves and motor nerves are still intact and can tell during the surgery that if they're hurting or, or getting too close to one of those uh, nerve trunks, uh, they know that they get alerted to that. In the old days, before those things were done, sometimes people would come out of surgeries and the surgeons would have to come in to find out whether or not their patient's been paralyzed by the procedure they just got. They wouldn't know. Uh, normothermia, this is the idea of bringing people back up to the, to the uh, normal uh, core temperature. Um, preventing injury, now remember people have wounds, they've just been traumatized, somebody has cut into them uh, and so they, there's injuries that can occur from the, from the wound. There's nothing really holding the wound together right now except some stitches or staples and tape that's holding, holding things together. Uh, the, the recovery process, the wound healing process begins quickly, um, but in those first few hours, it's, it's dangerous. Plus, you're trying to come out of what was essentially an induced coma of anesthesia. So there's a lot of things that put you at risk for, for injury during that part. You're very, very vulnerable. The other thing is that because of the effects of anesthesia, a lot of people are very nauseated after surgery. And one thing you don't want to be doing after you've had some abdominal surgery is going, you know, retching because you're nauseated. That can hurt that wound. It's going to hurt you. Hope I didn't make you sick there. <laughs> I saw Gabby turn green there. <laughs> uh, hmm? What? Did you say something? No, okay. Uh, so a lot of times um, antiemetics may be given if anybody shows the slightest sign of being, being nauseated. Um, these are all the things that you're going to be assessing. You're going to be listening to, to lung sounds, taking pulses, taking frequent blood pressures. You're looking for changes. You're looking for any signs of the, of the heart rate getting faster. You're looking for changes in the blood pressure that, that may be showing, showing that a person could be going into a hypovolemic shock. Uh, you're listening to the GI tract for what? Bowel sounds, right. Uh, they're, one of the effects of the anesthesia is they pretty much slow down to nothing. And so you want to start hearing the bowel sounds come, come back uh, because you won't, they're not allowed to, people shouldn't, you shouldn't give anybody anything to drink until you can hear some fairly active bowel sounds. Uh, people have to pee. You know, a lot of times if the surgeries, the people are going to have a catheter put in if it's very extensive because they may not want them to actually get up and, and use the bathroom, and so they'll put in a catheter. But a lot of surgeries don't. Uh, and one of the important things is to make sure that people know, can urinate afterwards. One of the undesired side effects of some anesthesia is kidney damage. 
And so sometimes people are unable to void afterwards because they're not producing urine anymore. More commonly what happens is your urinary sphincter closes down, your bladder fills up, and you're just not able to pee. And so if you palpate their bladder, you'll feel this little lump there because they're really, really wanting to pee. Sometimes they're in pain, they want to pee so much, but they just can't. It seems it's one of these post-op things where you just, uh, you want to pee, but, you, but, but your sphincter won't, won't let go. So that's sometimes you have to start running the, hot, running the water, uh, talking about your trip to Niagara Falls, you know, anything you can do to imagine them, uh, to help them uh, start, to, start to pee. You also, as I said, you want to be talking to them. You want to see, are they aware of who they are, what's going on, keep, of course, keeping them informed. If anybody can talk to you, that shows that almost all the cranial nerves are intact because of so many cranial nerves are involved with the ability to see you, understand you, uh, hear you, uh, speak back to you, uh, and respond appropriately. Uh, it's a good neurologic assessment if anybody can just talk to you. Uh, and of course, psychosocial is just keeping people informed about where they are, what's going on, what the next steps will be, how long they're going to be in this setting, when they're going to be, when they're going to be moved. All right, let's take a break, come back at 11 o'clock, and we'll start talking about respiratory care.